I think it was just ingrained, you know, from the beginning that, hey, this is tough. And I went nine elk seasons before I killed my first elk. So I was, uh, I think I was 20 or 21 when I killed my first elk. I was a junior in college. I had already won, I think, two <laughs> world elk calling championships, two or three world elk calling championships, and had never killed an elk. So, you know, there's a little bit of motivation there that and if this title's <laughs> ever going to mean anything, I better start putting some uh, some proof behind it. Tough Podcast, brought to you by Sig Sauer. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Mountain Tough Podcast. We are so glad that you are here diving into these episodes week after week. It is our goal to bring you the best of the best, inspiring guests each week that give you those tools in your toolbox to live that virtuous, abundant life. If you're a brand new listener or a loyal listener, and you haven't left a ranking or review wherever you get your podcasts, if you could do that, that means a ton to us. It means a ton to me and the Mountain Tough team. Also with the algorithm, it does help get these episodes out to more people so that we can inspire, transform, and change more lives. Latest events around Mountain Tough, there has been a lot of buzz around the Mountain Strength Program. So if you are in a strength training window in this wintertime season, make sure you check out Mountain Strength. Mountain Strength was co-created with us, the Mountain Tough team, and Donnie Bigham. Donnie is a multiple world record holder in squat, bench, and deadlift at a body weight of 180 pounds. He is an absolute beast, and we worked with him last year to bring you all a strength program that you can bring your strength up to baseline for a functional hybrid athlete that's looking to dominate the backcountry, the mountains, or your military career. It's a program that you're definitely going to want to add in the off season. So if you haven't checked that out yet, make sure to check out Mountain Strength. And remember, with the Mountain Tough app, you can download it wherever you find apps. So it's going to be available on iPhone, Android, Amazon, Roku, and it's going to start everyone on a 14-day free trial. So open that up and check out the Mountain Strength Program if you're looking to get your strength up to baseline in this off-season. Transitioning now over to today's guest, this was a fun, phenomenal conversation for me, one that I've been waiting a long time to have. Today, I sit down with Corey Jacobson. Corey is one of those guys that really does not need an introduction to the hunting community. 11-time world elk calling champion, creator of Elk 101. But if you know Corey or if you've heard him talk before, if you've followed him on YouTube or social media, you know not only does he have a long resume in the elk hunting world, He's also one of the nicest guys on the planet. And the conversation today is mind-blowing. Uh, when you learn how many difficulties health-wise Corey has gone through to chase his passion for elk hunting, it, it really breaks it down to you can do whatever you want to pursue your dreams. And Corey's going to share that story today. And no matter the obstacles that come in your way, whether they're health financial, family, you can still find a way to adapt and overcome and pursue your destiny for life, leave a legacy. None of these things are going to stop you. And Corey's going to break down how he did that today. It is an inspirational story. You are not going to want to miss. So stand by for my conversation with Corey Jacobson. I was really curious on on what your childhood actually looked like and, and how much hunting you were doing and um, what your parents were up to and, and kind of how you were how you were raised. Where did where did you grow up at? So I grew up in a tiny little logging community in kind of north central Idaho. 
And uh, my dad was a logger. My mom stayed at home. And we lived probably 17 miles from the nearest town. And that town was just a small, you know, 2,000 people. Uh, but where we lived, there was a small little one-room schoolhouse that had one teacher. And first through sixth grades went there with about 15, 16 kids in the school. So definitely <laughs> uh, almost a little house on the prairie. Like you don't see many one-room schoolhouses still uh, still functioning today. But you know that that uh, there were there were a lot of benefits to that. Um, we were kind of sheltered and shielded from the city, which the city wasn't much to speak of, but, mm-hmm. uh, the outdoors were, were our backyard. And so, you know, we rode two stroke motorcycles to school. Some days we rode snowmobiles to school, uh, in the winter, uh, the bus was just a little tiny bus that usually ran about an hour late. Cause there was so much snow and the, uh, only snow plow driver was the bus driver also. <laughs> so he would have to usually run and plow the roads before he could get the bus there to pick us up. Uh, so it was, it was a small, uh, community, which was awesome. Uh, and then, like I said, you know, we, we would leave school and on the way home, we could, we could hunt for white-tailed deer. We could hear elk bugle, you know, from our house. And so it, it definitely got me, you know, my, my dad and my mom both hunted. So we were into that naturally, but then living in that environment gave us the opportunity to, to just be immersed in it from a super young age. Wow. That is wild. That's awesome. And how many brothers and sisters did you have? I have uh, just one sister. Okay. And was your was your dad a logger for a while? He was. In fact, he uh, he logged until I think he quit logging when I was probably about a senior in high school and uh, transitioned full time into outfitting. Uh, about the same time, he started a call company and and started doing that while he was also outfitting and then transitioned into just running the call company full-time. And how did that look for you as a kid when your dad started the elk call company? Were you, were you helping out and and diving into working there a little bit? No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) It was uh, basically him sitting in a, in an easy chair with a TV tray next to him with a whole bunch of metal frames and uh, latex and a thing of glue and some tape and just assembling diaphragm calls literally in our living room every night while we watch TV or, you know, whatever we were doing. But yeah, it started out literally in the living room, you know, with, uh, with very small, uh, overhead and uh, <laughs> not a lot of customers. And, you know, he, he dabbled with, we kind of, he built calls, diaphragm calls. I would say probably mid to late eighties, he was making them not, you know, at all on a commercial scale. And then uh, I think it was sometime early nineties, 92, somewhere that he started the company and started selling diaphragm calls. And how long did he do that before? for he was able to make that his full-time career you know i i don't remember probably uh, six seven years you know and it was it was close to full-time the whole time you know it's it's one of those things when you're an entrepreneur or have a, a side hustle yeah it, uh, a lot of times you spend full-time hours working on it in addition to your actual full-time employment for sure and when when you were in your youth, I imagine you were doing you were doing a lot of elk hunting around that hometown and in spending a lot of time in the hills and, and in the backcountry. Yeah. So my dad was an outfitter. So he's gone, you know, the last week of August through the end of September. And so before I could drive, it was my mom that would drive me out and drop me off and wait there at the truck until dark and I'd come back with a with a pocket full of lessons learned and not a whole lot of elk being killed when I was young for sure. Uh, but yeah, we, we were fortunate. We could drive uh, five miles, six miles from our house and be into, into bugling elk. And then when we moved into town, uh, which was 15, 16 miles from our from our original house, just so we could be closer to high school. And my mom was working at the time in town. Uh, it's still, you know, we were able to be hunting elk within a 
25, 30 minute drive. So a lot of time spent chasing elk in middle school and high school for sure. That's amazing. It's interesting because there's a lot of local legends that I know here in Bozeman and a lot of legendary hunters that I know in Bozeman. And many of them have a similar connection point. And it's that when they were really young, their parents were dropping them off in the back country <laughs> and, the, yep. and, the, and they were hunting solo. And it's so funny because in today's modern age and with kids of our own, that sounds like a really scary, intimidating thing to do to just to drop your kid at 12, 13, 14, 15 and let them hunt for one or two or multiple days on their own. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's part of our motivation as parents to move to where we did. We live quite a ways out of town now. And, uh, you know, it just gave us the opportunity to expose our kids to not exactly the same lifestyle I had growing up, but, but something similar. And actually there was a, a parent that called me a couple of years ago when my youngest son, I think he was 14 or 15. He just got his driver's license. So he must've been 15 and he and a buddy went out and stayed the night and camped and Turkey hunted the next morning. And this parent had heard about it and was all concerned that, you know, a 15 year old is out camping on their own and <laughs> how safe is that? And, you know, I just, I, didn't think twice. I mean, yeah, obviously there's concerns and he knows that there are rules, but Mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, I look back at at my upbringing and those opportunities are are priceless to be a youth and to be able to be out there and learning, you know, not, not that he's surviving by any means, but there's skills that you learn when you stay overnight by yourself that, Hey, I've got to take care of this and I've got to think about this and plan for this. Yeah. Uh, I think they're positive things for sure. It's amazing how empowering it is and and how much confidence it gives you. My childhood was really similar and I was very passionate about fishing and fly fishing. And I remember a handful of times my mom dropping me at this tiny little brown trout creek outside of Sheridan, Wyoming, and then just picking me up at the end of the day. And when you like walk to the car where your parents are waiting and you've been out there all day by yourself and I'd always bring a few fish home and it's like, you're so empowered and you, you have so much confidence. It's, it's a, it's a really cool experience. Totally. Yeah. Just the confidence it gives you to, to know that you've been out there on your own and you're walking back. Like you said, to your parents' vehicle, you almost feel like, look at me, you know, Mm -hmm. I did this on my own. I made it and I caught some fish. I was successful and here I am still alive. Yeah. I remember uh, harvesting my first whitetail ever out of a tree stand with my bow. And I, my dad walked me through the process and had taught me a lot about it. And then there was a day where he couldn't join me in the tree stands and I went alone. I was 13 and I, it was only a couple of miles from our house. So I took one of our vehicles, uh, without a license, got in the tree stand (laughs) and, um, I shot a doe with my bow and it was, I like could not wait for my dad to get home because I loaded her in the back of the car, did all the uh, field processing myself, loaded her in the car, got home. And I just stood there in the driveway waiting for my dad. <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> it was like a highlight of my childhood. Yeah. And you want to play it off cool, probably like, you know, let him see it on his own in the back of the truck. But if it was like me, you know, it's like, <laughs> come look what I got, you know, immediately wanted to, wanted him to be able to see that. For sure. Well, I did want to shift slightly and dive into your mindset, Corey, because I know that not only in the backcountry, you have a very strong mindset. You're pushing a lot of miles in the backcountry and you've been on some extremely, extremely difficult hunts. But I also know that you've gone through uh, tough stuff personally, uh, health-wise, business-wise, and that mental fitness is so connected across all of those elements. But in your life, when did you start thinking about mindset or mental toughness even being a concept? 
Yeah, you know, and I don't know that there was ever a, a day or a time that I can look back on and say, I, I got it here. You know, like you got to be tough mentally if you want to do these things. I think, you know, there was a lot of a lot of it that, you know, being a, a first grader at six years old and having our driveway was probably, you know, it was over a quarter mile long. And we had to be out at the end of the the bus stop, you know, before it was daylight. And so I had to learn to, you know, not be scared of the dark mm-hmm. and to walk that long walk in heavy snow in the winters. We'd easily get three or four feet of snow every winter. And, you know, I'm trudging out there to the end and then waiting in the cold and the dark for the school bus to come. And, you know, I can still remember there were times I didn't, you know, I'd stand up on the corner where I could still see the porch light from our house and I could see the bus stop, but I didn't want to go to the bus stop because I'd lose vision, you know, lose sight of the the house there. And so, you know, I can remember being scared and having to overcome that. Uh, so I think, you know, the, the upbringing kind of, there were tough things we had to do mm-hmm. just living out like that. And, you know, no one came and plowed our road for us. And there were times that we used to, you know, walk behind snowblower because snow was too deep to, to plow the snow. So just little things like that, that I think getting ingrained to you that, Hey, nobody's going to come and and bail you out. You've got to figure out how to, how to do these things and how to make do. Uh, and then athletics probably was, was the start of it for me. Uh, I've told the story quite a few times, but there were 21 kids on our seventh grade basketball team and only 20 uniforms. Mm. And that meant I wore the silk track uniform at the end of the bench, I was number 21 out of 21 on the team mm. and realized, you know what, I'm not blessed with a whole lot of athletic ability. So if I want to not wear a track uniform on the basketball team next year, I've got to work. And so that kind of started, you know, a, a little bit of a working towards something and happened to overcome you know, I, like I said, I was the slowest kid. I couldn't jump. I still, you know, I'm, I have to work at physical fitness and, and be an athletic. Uh, and as I got into high school, uh, my sophomore year, I was cut from the JV team and had to play on the freshman team as a sophomore and, you know, things like that, that I could have easily quit and said, basketball is not for me. Yep. And I can remember, you know, my coach sitting down and saying, Hey, listen, I think if you got some more experience and playing time, it would benefit you. You probably aren't going to get a lot of playing time on the JV team. So we're going to put you on the freshman team. And they probably, you know, back then, now the, the they don't even call it a freshman team. They call it a JVB team because they didn't, you know, there's enough sophomores playing on that team that they don't want to insult anyone or hurt anyone's feelings. But back then it was the freshman team and a sophomore on it kind of. Yeah told you where you where your standing was in the pecking order and and I went home I remember telling my dad hey I'm going to be on the freshman team again he's like why would you even want to play on the freshman team and you know for me it was like well that's that's how I'm going to get better and so I took that opportunity and and did improve and then you know in the off season I can remember being the only person down at the local playground feeding quarters into the lights to to keep the lights on at night to be able to shoot and just by myself down there. And, you know, it paid off and I ended up playing a little bit of college basketball. And, but that was kind of my motivation is people saying, you're never going to play college basketball. You know, you're never going to be on varsity in high school. You're never going to play college basketball, these things. And that kind of fueled me to, to gain a, probably more of a competitive nature than a lot of people have. Um, you know, and I, I think there's, there's good and bad. Obviously you've got to be competitive to, to succeed to some degree, but then there's also a a fine line there that you don't want to cross. And I think I've probably <laughs> been a little too competitive at, at different times yep. and had to learn how to tone that back a little. So a lot of that, it sounds like was self-developed for you. Your, your parents or your father wasn't giving you a lot of kind of mental toughness guidance at that point, you were kind of creating this all on your own through your own circumstances. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of us that grew up in the, you know, as we, our formative years were in the eighties. Mm-hmm. A lot of our parents weren't the coddling kind that, <laughs> you know, gave everybody awards and, and uh, said, you can be anything you want to be, you know, I think in, I think it was fairly normal that, you know, their motivation for us was, 
you're never going to be good enough. You know, it's, you're, you're not going to make it. Why would you waste your time with that? And looking back now, I can see, you know, yeah, there was some of it that they were hoping I wouldn't stick with it. And uh, the other part of it was, hey, you're going to have to be tougher than than the people around you. So mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you right now, you're not very tough and yeah, you're probably not going to make it, at, you know, to use as motivation to, to go out and learn to be tougher. That tough love. Yeah. Yep. And did you, did you notice some years where that determination and that ability to, to fight against someone telling you, you can't do something in, in that it sounds like your mental toughness toolbox is, is really heavy on the side of outwork, out practice, some, some competition. Did you, did you notice a season where that really started applying to your, your hunting and your hunting career? Yeah, I mean, it, not necessarily directly, you know, isn't like, hey, I'm just, you know, I've, I failed and failed and failed. I guess I'm going to have to start working hard. <laughs> I think it was just ingrained, you know, from the beginning that, hey, this is tough. And I went nine elk seasons before I killed my first elk. So I was, uh, I think I was 20 or 21 when I killed my first elk. I was a junior in college. I had already won, I think, two world elk calling championships, <laughs> two or three world elk calling championships, and had never killed an elk. So, you know, there's a little bit of motivation there that, man, if this title's ever going to mean anything, <laughs> I better start putting some uh, some proof behind it. Uh, but, you know, I, I think I knew from the beginning elk hunting's tough, you know, not only physically tough, but just you got to stick with it. There's going to be a lot of failure, and you've got to learn from those failures if you want to want to come back and be successful next time. So I think, you know, when I was 12, uh, 13, 14, I would take my bow out during rifle season in Idaho. Back then you could hunt all of archery season, which was all of September with a bow. And then you could turn around October 10th and start hunting with a rifle through like the first of November, all on the same tag. So when everybody else was packing a rifle starting October 10th, I'd still be out there with my bow wanting to kill an elk with a bow mm, and crazy. knowing that it would be easier probably to do with a rifle, but being determined that bow hunting was where it was at for me. Always looking for some of those harder options. Yeah. And I mean, then, you know, now I think I would look at it and be like, okay, hey, yeah, I want to, I want to challenge here. So I'm going to go and do it. Then it wasn't so much the challenge. It was just, I loved archery. Archery was, you know, for me, besides basketball, it was archery was everything and not just bow hunting, but, you know, shooting a bow, going to tournaments, competing, all of that. And so I would come home from school when it wasn't basketball season and I'd spend two, three hours, sometimes every night shooting my bow, just 20 yards, 30 yards, repetitive, uh, probably picking up more bad habits then than, <laughs> than actually benefiting from it. But yeah, I mean, it, archery was, I, I loved archery. And so an opportunity to be able to carry my bow in the woods and hope to to kill an elk with a bow, uh, the rifle season just gave me a, another month to do that. That's really cool because it it's really similar to putting more quarters in the lights so that you can get more reps on the court, just more practice than, than most people are doing. Yeah. And you have to remember, I, I didn't kill an elk for nine, for nine <laughs> years. So it also gave me a, a lot more uh, lessons to learn, a lot more failure to have to deal with over those first nine years. That's incredibly helpful too. Cause I was talking to Randy last week on Randy Newberg's podcast. And it was a very, very similar story where I think he went six years without killing an elk. And his wife was wondering, you know, what is he doing? Why doesn't he switch hobbies? Maybe he should take up golf or something. And are you truly going out hunting? (laughs) Are you going somewhere else and just coming back in? Yeah. Where have you been? But, but I think that that is the norm uh, across all great hunters is all, all great hunters, all hunters that stick with it. They go through this big season of failure and failure and failure and, and learning from those failures, which ultimately, if they stick it out long enough, what is what truly lets them to be successful and turn into something great. But a huge component of that is, is kind of that never quit mentality. 
Definitely. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, there's way more that can be learned and should be learned in failure than in successes. And especially when you're starting out, you know, a lot of times you see people go out their first year and they kill an elk and they're successful, but hopefully they understand there was probably a lot of luck involved and they probably, when they're faced with some adversity on their next hunt, which, you know, elk hunting, there's always adversity, whether it's physical challenge, whether it's a mental challenge, whether it's just overcoming Murphy's laws, which seem to be coming at you from every direction. Uh, when those happen and you haven't had that experience and you haven't been through an experienced failure, it's hard to know what to do in those situations. You're kind of left grasping for straws. So I think there's so much that can be learned from failure, you know, whether it's in the the setup or your physical conditioning, you know, you fail too early and you tire out and you have to go home or you take a few days off and you don't get a, you know, fully capitalize on all the opportunities you could have uh, or whether you tap out because you just you know, mentally you're, you're not there. I think those are important lessons to learn and to forego failing in any endeavor. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you're, you're giving up a lot of opportunity to grow and to truly find what it takes to be successful. For sure. And that is, that is definitely a, a top 10 mindset tool that is well-documented and it is that viewpoint, that perspective of, can we look at failure it's not a failure, but an option to learn. And that's been so helpful for me, not only in hunting, but in the creation of Mountain Tough is if if I and our whole team can wrap our minds around that we have to try things and we're going to fail and we're going to fail all the time. But as long as we're learning along that whole journey, then they're, they're truly not failures. It's just making us better. And, and a, a learn is a win. And so if we're learning, yeah. we, we're winning, not failing. Totally. Yeah. The, the path to success is paved with thousands of failures for sure. I've used a ton of Bluetooth speakers over the years and they all have never quite had enough output for me to really have an awesome home gym workout on a Bluetooth speaker. But the Turtle Box is in a whole new ball game. They have leveled up this product, so the base and the output you get out of a Turtle Box is quite amazing. It's funny how we started using them at the lab. We had an awesome sound system at our new lab here in Bozeman. We were using it so much, we actually blew our brand new system out. We went right to the Turtle Boxes, and so we paired two together in the lab and that was a lot of output for the Mountain Tough team and all of our testing to have phenomenal sound in our gym for a great workout with great music. We know there's a ton of Mountain Toughers training in their basements, in their garages, and I know a lot of you are looking for great sound to play some music in the background to your MGDs or your kettlebell diesel. This is a great product for you to check out. Turtle Box is at a whole new level the bass and the volume you can get out of that box. It's a sweet product. You guys can check them out at turtleboxaudio.com. Again, that's turtleboxaudio.com. You've been listening to the Mountain Tough Podcast. And Corey, you've been on some very hard hunts. You've been on many backcountry hunts and some are you know, harder than others. And you and I have talked about your Alaska elk hunt previously. <laughs> How did I know that was going to come up? <laughs> do, you, do you feel like that was the hardest trip you've ever been on? Uh, overall, from a, from a mental standpoint, probably so. Just because it was grueling. I mean, the, the weather, the conditions were just horrible mm -hmm. and there we couldn't throw in a towel you know there was no tap out button there was no hey let's just go back and come back when the weather straightens up uh, we'd killed an elk on day one and spent the next three days you know four we were on day four before we got it packed out we spent three full days packing Jeez. and there's there's no way nobody can come pick us up we're on a, a remote island that's 
you know, a long ways from anything. Donnie was sick. He's in the tent, you know, can't come help us pack. So it's just cameraman John and I packing. And Donnie's only option was to hit SOS and hope the Coast Guard could bring a helicopter and drop a line to get him out of there if he truly was going to tap out. There's just, there's no option. Nobody can come and bail you out. Nobody can come and and help you pack out your elk. Nobody can come and, and save you from that. So, yeah. you know, I think it goes back to... I don't know that I've ever known that quitting was an option mm-hmm. in anything, you know, and that's, I know failure is an option and failure is a part of, of anything we go after, but quitting before the the job gets done has never, has never been an option. And so that hunt uh, probably tested that <laughs> metal uh, as much as anything, just because you get, you know, the, the verticalness of where we were hunting, it was straight off. There were two times we literally with loaded packs of elk meat had to turn around and go straight back up because we cliffed out. Jeez. And I don't know that we cliffed out. It was just so steep and so foggy that I couldn't see what was right below me. So I'm packs. standing there holding on to a tree that, you know, is vertical with me, the the mountains right back behind me there. And I don't know what my next step, if it's going to be a thousand foot drop, or if there's something three feet underneath me, I'm going to be able to secure my crampons into. So, you know, they, it's that steep and that rugged and you get down to the bottom with the first load and you find a way down and you're like, we've got to do this three more times. Man. That's and it's solid downpour. It didn't let up raining for even a minute. Like it, it rained for four straight days. And I think they got 12 inches of rain in five days or something there. And so it just, you know, it's, it's one of those things that mentally you just have to lock in and say, if I stop moving for more than five minutes, I start shivering. Mm-hmm. Like it is that cold and I'm that wet that as long as I keep moving, I'm okay. But if I stop to eat, I've got five minutes and I've got to get moving again. And so then your mind starts saying, what if you break an ankle? What if you twist your knee? What if, you know, all these things, we don't have camp on our back. It's not like I can just throw out a sleeping bag and climb in it and warm up. And so there's just a lot going on there, safety and discomfort and heavy loads and all these things that at the end, yeah, you look back on it. It's like, man, that was that was an adventure. Yeah. But when you're in it, it's uh it's almost step by step, minute by minute that you're just coaching yourself saying, you don't have a choice. You know, there's no option out. So you've got to just take another step and keep going. And the the size of those elk too was a whole nother element as well. Yeah. It was uh, you know, I've seen Roosevelt bulls before and they're huge compared to our normal, even a big mountain, Rocky Mountain bull is uh is nowhere near as big as a big roosevelt bull Mm -hmm. and then these ones in alaska were just off the charts i've never seen anything like it yeah i remember seeing those pictures the body size is pretty mind-blowing on those things yeah yeah and just the amount of meat i can remember you know we there were no trees so we couldn't make a, a makeshift meat pole and hang quarters and then bone it out while it was hanging, we had to bone it out while it's there on the, on the animal. And I can remember the first hind quarter, you know, we got the skin all off and I'm just starting to cut chunks of meat off of that hind quarter. And it just seemed to go forever. You know, they have the same number of muscles and everything, but it just seemed like I was pulling meat off of it for three times as long as I normally would. (laughs) That's crazy. I love how you talked about quitting not being an option and just taking that option off the table entirely because that that is huge. That That is a huge principle that can be applied across all areas of life. I mean, business, marriage. I think as soon as that is just identified as that is just not an option, I'm going to plow through this. Uh, I'm going to plow through this, probably fail, probably learn but I'm not quitting that it actually, it actually in a way makes the like the mindset game quite a bit easier because otherwise you have this battle going on in your mind of like, should I quit or not quit? We see it a lot of times in the lab. If you, if you put someone through a, a very difficult workout, if, if you, if you let them know that quitting is not an option one way or another, we are going to get this workout done. That might, that may take all day or maybe two or three other people are going to need to jump in there and help you. But quitting is not an option. It, it kind of changes the whole game because then you go into problem solving mode 
rather than uh, fear and defeat mode. Totally. Give, giving up is easy. Anybody can throw in the towel and just walk away and be done. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's there's no consequence to that. And especially in today's world, I think that a lot of kids are being taught, hey, there's no consequence. If you don't like something, if something's not fun, you don't have to do it. And what a disservice that, that we're doing, you know, as a basketball coach, I see it all the time that basketball practice isn't fun. So I'm not going to play anymore. Well, practice is never fun. Mm-hmm. You know, it should never be fun. That's if it's fun, something, I mean, yeah, we can make it enjoyable to a degree, but I just see way too many of, of youth today that they don't even want to do something or don't want to look at something or have no ambition towards something unless it's fun. And they're missing out on so much because the real rewards usually aren't attached to things that are fun. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, the it, once you realize that, hey, quitting isn't an option, like you said, it makes it easier mentally. I think, uh, you know, you have to put in a lot more effort to make it through it. But when you know it's not an option, I think the mental game does get easier. Yeah. And the mental game sometimes is... is uh, a lot of people's worst enemy. It is a big enemy. Yeah. Yeah. I think knowing yourself and working on yourself is, is a huge advantage on that mindset stuff. Absolutely. And and Corey, you're coaching a a lot of basketball. Now you have been for a while. How did, how did that start? And I'm, I'm really curious, like, what are some of the, the core principles that you focus on teaching the kids? Yeah. So it, you know, we, when I mentioned earlier, we moved up to where we live now, uh, just to give our kids kind of that lifestyle. Uh, we did that when my oldest was going into high school. And so we just, you know, first day of basketball practice, took him to the high school and went in to meet the coach. And turns out it was a a guy that I, uh, played against in high school and he was from a neighboring town and he's the the head coach there. And I just said, Hey, if you ever need a hand with anything, let me know. I'm, you know, got kind of a flexible schedule and could help out with anything. And about a week later he called and said, Hey, were you serious about wanting to, <laughs> to be involved? I'm like, sure. If you need help. So I started out uh, coaching then. So it's been, uh, I think this is seven or eight years now I've, I've been doing it. And you know, I've seen even in that time, the the mindset change in some of the youth, mm. you know, as far as not just not being held to the same standards of accountability and and sticking with it and, and being gritty. Mm-hmm. And but even then, we're still we're dealing with 14, 15, 16 year old boys whose brains are not anywhere near developed and who also a lot of them are given a an easy button and can quit if things get hard. Uh, so one of the things, you know, we, and I love the, the one thing I've always been super competitive. And the thing I have to remind myself is this isn't for me. Yeah. Like I can't be competitive and want to win as a coach. I have to install that and instill that in them and they have to want it. No matter how badly I want it, my competitiveness isn't going to come through in a positive way as a coach. Yeah. So I have to help them understand the reward and have a desire and ambition to to be successful. And one of the greatest things that I absolutely hope happens every year is we get beat because there's there's so much <laughs> that can be taught in those minutes in the locker room after losing a tough game mm-hmm. when especially i mean we've got a good program our our varsity team's been in the state championship two of the last three years uh our jv team that i coach has been you know top two or three teams in the conference every year so we've got a successful program and sometimes kids come in just expecting to win and it's it can be a great teaching moment when they lose yeah. and the thing that I'm I'm probably this this team that I'm coaching now is probably the best team I've coached overall there's been better players for sure you know and and maybe better opportunities but this year I think we have a, a better chance of winning the championship than than we've ever had which with like I said 15 16 year old boys that doesn't mean anything you get a different player in a different team that shows up every night um but the thing I keep telling them is 
don't ever think we're better than the other team. I don't care how bad they are. Go into the game with the mindset that the other team's better than us. And the only way we're going to beat them is by working hard. I'll work in them. And, you know, there's a, the quote, something like uh, talent or hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's, I try to teach them in, in not as many words that, hey, we're not as good as them. So don't think that we're good and we're just going to get the win because we're better than them. We're going to have to work hard. That's the only way we're going to win. And trying to to teach that to teenage boys and get it to stick. I don't know that it's sticking, but hopefully, you know, someday they look back and they realize, you know what, coach was tough on us and he was hard on us because he saw our potential and wanted us to get better, not just because he wanted us to show up and have a good social experience and have fun with basketball. That's awesome. Have you found other things that have been helpful recently with with kids and youth losing a little bit of their grit. I'm, I'm sure like with, with my own kids, I know that there's a, there's a technology impact to that, but have you, have you found a few things that, that, that helps fight against that? Man, not, not on a a coaching level necessarily with my own kids. Yeah. You know, I think giving them opportunities to, to test themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we do a lot of winter camping and my youngest son looks forward to that. He's like, dad, when are we going to go set up the wall tent and shiver in single digit <laughs> temperatures, wolf hunting or something, you know? So I think providing them those opportunities to realize, Hey, I can do hard things. Mm-hmm. And I think that so many kids just don't have that. They just don't get the opportunity to, to fail or to be tested and realize, hey, I'm I'm capable of doing a lot more than what I think I am. And it's huge. It's amazing. You know, when you're put in situations where you where quitting isn't an option, you quickly realize there's not much I can't do. Yeah. You know, I might not do it at a high level or I might not do it really great, but I can do it and I can get through it and I can finish it. And once you realize that, I think it changes your outlook quite a bit. For sure. I think it gives you a solution based mindset too. Cause if you're out there and, and you have to figure it out, you start thinking creatively, uh, you know, I am cold. What should I do? I am tired. What should I do? And so you start coming up with your own solutions and you, you get those critical thinking skills, which are huge. Absolutely. And have you found Corey that a lot of the principles and hard trips, hard work you've put in, in hunting have carried over into your business life? Yeah. And like you mentioned at the beginning, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, it, it canvases everything, you know, from business to marriage, to relationships, friendships, um, just anything you're dealing with, you know, anything in life you can, if you have a no quit attitude and you've learned to, to be a problem solver and realize, Hey, this isn't going away. I can't quit. So I've got to find a solution and not just a solution to get me through today, but maybe a solution to make things better tomorrow. I think that applies to, to just about everything in life, but to, to directly answer your question. Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to business Mm -hmm. and owning your own business is, as you know, is not easy. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, a lot of things that you don't realize that you have to do and that pop up and are unexpected. And you've got to find a way to, to solve them. Sometimes they're short-term, sometimes they're, they're long-term. And it's uh, that, that mindset though, I think helps, uh, especially in business. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I think it's similar to like, if you're on the mountain in the back country and in a, huge snowstorm comes in and, and kind of knocks you down for a couple of days. It's, it's really similar to when you get knocked down in business and it, it hurts and you're uncomfortable and you're cold, but you, you got to figure it out. And the, the thing that I've thought a lot about too, is like the, the hardest trips, the most difficult physically and mentally hunts we've ever been on are the most memorable. They stand out the most and when we think back back on those, they're the greatest hunts of our lives. It it seems to be that same principle in business where the really hard struggles that we had to fight and claw our way through are also some of the greatest moments of our business career. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when we think about reward in those situations, it's not necessarily 
the the final result you know those tough hunts it's not the size of the elk at the end it's not uh you know that that actual final tangible result mm-hmm. it's uh it's the growth that we experience and the strength that we gain that enables us to to go and tackle it maybe a little better the next time and i think that's what makes them memorable you know the bull that i shot in alaska was a nice bull but it wasn't a a giant mm-hmm. i mean giant body yes but <laughs> you know there's there's bigger roosevelt bulls for sure that's i don't even i don't even think about the the antlers you know when i think about that hunt it's all the other things that i was able to overcome and now i now i look at things that before maybe i was a little intimidated to try and it's like if i can do that surely this this other thing that i've been looking at's not going to be as difficult and i can do it now and so i think that is those are the fond memories we have are the actual growth that we receive mm-hmm. after we make it out the the other side of a challenging situation yeah it's huge the it's like the the process is always greater than the outcome the process yeah. is everything and that's something you know i struggle with a lot especially in hunting is learning to enjoy the the journey and not just focusing on the destination being filling a tag. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's easy to get caught up in got to fill a tag, got to fill a tag, got to fill a tag today, 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 <laughs> if not today, tomorrow, tomorrow, you know, I got to be, got to fill that tag. And pretty soon the hunt's over. And whether you fill a tag or not, I think sometimes you miss out on, on enjoying some of that experience because you're so focused on that final outcome. With that being said, filling the tag is the goal. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, you don't want to get down to day eight and realize, Oh, I haven't even been packing my bow. No wonder I haven't killed an elk. You know, it's, we've got, we've got to be trying, but I think that there's, there's uh enjoyment that can be found even in the struggle and in the, in the journey That's a, rather than just the destination. Yeah. That's a hard balance too. It's really hard in hunting and it's really hard in business it's it's tough with your kids too because you're always looking for uh these big milestone moments and you you lose track of the little day-to-day things that are so awesome that's a tough one yeah um two of my three have uh graduated high school and moved on and my youngest is a junior and you know that window is rapidly closing (laughs) and there's several times i just think back to man i wish they were four Mm -hmm. i wish they were seven and i can remember when they were four and you know seven thinking i can't wait till they're (laughs) older these days are so tough and you know for for anyone out there going through a terrible twos or threes or you know dealing with toddlers or anything man enjoy that because it goes fast and i don't want to spoil anything here but teenage years are no fun either so <laughs> in, enjoy every moment and don't just wish that it was over and the next phase was here because each phase is special oh it goes so fast we have a we have a thing at our church that counts down how many weeks our daughters have left until they graduate high school and you they put the marbles in the jar depending on the kids age and so we were looking at my 11-year-old daughter's jar the other day, and she has like 362 weeks left until she's... And her jar's over half full. I'm like, holy smokes, like <laughs> 360 weeks is not much time at all. Yeah, and it just seems, you know, I, I heard people and I still hear people say, yeah, it just seems like things are going faster than they were a year ago. They're going faster than they were five years ago. And it's, it happens, you know, the, the kids get older, they start getting friends. So your time with them is now being shared with, with their desire to be with friends. Then they get into sports and that takes up some of their time. So your time with them's cut even further. And then they start driving and you see them maybe at dinner time if you're lucky usually late at night when they get home and ask where dinner is and <laughs> you get a few minutes with them then and then then they're gone yeah it gets less and less each year mountain tough is the fitness app trusted by the dedicated mountain tough ethos is backed by we've always wanted to be the best in the world at helping our customers become more mentally tough so inside the mountain tough app You're not only going to find all of our physical training programs, 
but you're going to find additional training as well so that you can stay sharp physically, mentally, spiritually, and nutritionally. The Mountain Tough app also allows you to train no matter where you are, anytime, anywhere. Additionally, the Mountain Tough app is going to have programs from beginners all the way up to elite athletes. And all of our programming is structured in a way that you can start with no gear at body weight and you can go all the way up to programming that is full gear. So you can do that in a robust home gym or your local gym. There's no excuse for you not to start today. With Mountain Tough, you can conquer your goals with ideal program for your lifestyle and schedule. Train with equipment or just your body weight on your phone, tablet, TV, or web browser. Most importantly, Mountain Tough will help you train your mindset so you are always ready for anything life throws your way. Mountain Tough is offering the Mountain Tough podcast listeners an incredible offer. Six weeks free on the Mountain Tough app. All you need to do is use the code MTNPOD to redeem your six weeks of training. That'll be a 14-day free trial plus a whole additional four weeks of training. Just go to mountaintough.com and enter code MTNPOD. P-O-D for your six weeks free on the best in class physical and mental training app. You've been listening to the Mountain Tough Podcast. But Corey, I did want to spend some time chatting with you about your your health and fitness. I was really curious from a backcountry hunter perspective, what do you do? How have you been thinking about kind of what what are your protocols and regimens around being the the best possible backcountry hunter you can be from a from a physical training and health perspective? Yeah, so you know health, and I haven't talked a, a whole lot about my health journey, but, uh, 14 years ago, I got bit by a tick and got Lyme disease. Mm. And it, you know, at that point when that happened, I was competing in triathlons. Uh, I was in undoubtedly the best shape of my life. I think it was 30, 32, 33, somewhere in there. And, uh, you know, just invincible. Mm. I could, I could run a triathlon and 36 hours later, do another one. And, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with just, I I really think like 32 to 35 is probably our prime for physical, you know, and you you hear people that are 23, 24, they think, oh, I'm as good as I'm ever going to get now. And then you hear people that are, you know, 38 (laughs) thinking, oh, I wish I was 30 still, 38's horrible. And then they wake up and they're 45. (laughs) And so I think there's a, there's definitely a prime there. Um, and I think I missed out on on a lot of that prime dealing with Lyme disease, and I still deal with with a lot of the effects of it. Wild. We didn't catch it early, uh, so there was you know it it drug on quite a bit. A lot of a lot of medical uh, health issues that really for three or four years were pretty uh, uncomfortable, mm. uh, and you know kind of took a, a little bit of the wind out of the sails. But with that, I realized. I'm not, uh, I'm not going to be able to just skate by. I'm going to have to purposefully and intentionally work at this. Yep. And, you know, I think that uh, maybe some of my upbringing helped with that, but I think some of that helped with uh, the mindset as well that, man, today sucks. Today really sucks. But I've been through it enough times that tomorrow is going to be better. And if not tomorrow, there's going to be a day in the future that's going to be better mm-hmm. and i just got to make it through this part right now Man. and so you know it's i went from you know i was down to 100 and i think 164 pounds at the at the peak of when i was the sickest uh and then i struggled to to gain weight i think the biggest thing is my body started attacking my testosterone production mm. so my testosterone levels right now are about 210 wow which for a, a mid forties guy <laughs> is not a comfortable place to be. That's low. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I would love to be at 700, mm-hmm. 
and, and there's such a difference. I mean, even between 400 and seven, I've been, I've been everywhere from a thousand to 200, everywhere in between there. Uh, I did testosterone replacement therapy for a while until my immune system decided that that's not going to happen anymore. So I can't do injections. I can't do uh, creams, anything like that, because my immune system attacks it and makes me super sick. The first time I found it out, I had a 103 degree fever for 10 straight days, was in the ER several times. Like, I don't know, maybe it's a virus. We don't know what's oh, going that's on. Wild. And uh, after the third time of trying to uh, get testosterone into my body, realized it's uh, that's what's causing the the reaction. So That's wild. with that being said, you know, it's, it's hard to gain muscle. It's hard to lose fat. Mm. Uh, it's hard to get motivation. There's a lot of uh, a benefit from having good levels of testosterone and without it, it uh, creates a lot of challenges. So that's wild. So my, my current, you know, I, I work out every day. Uh, I've got a home gym, so it makes it nice. But the thing I can't do is I can't push myself like I used to be able to mm. just physically. If I do that, my body will crash. And instead of taking two days to recover, it'll take four weeks to recover. Mm. And during that time, I just I realized during that downtime, I lose too much. And it's better to just say, hey, I'm going to go out and go through the motions today and try to gain a little bit without pushing hard enough to, to really gain. So it's been more of a, a long play rather than, Hey, I'm going to go hit the gym for three months and work really hard yep. and, and get in elk country shape. Now it's, I've got to do it year round and hopefully I'm a little stronger in September than I was last September. It's all about that consistency kind of at that moderate level. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't, you know, cardio is, is something I struggle with. I really just have to rely on my time in the field to gain the cardio that I need. Because if I try to, you know, get on the treadmill, I'm good for about a half mile, maybe a mile, but then I can feel my body saying, Hey, this is taking a little bit more energy than what we're able to produce right now. And if you keep pushing through this, there's, there's going to be long-term effects. So I can push a little bit, but then, uh, you know, the next day muscles don't recover quite as quickly and I have to, have to back off a little. Was that a Idaho tick that bit you? It, and, it was. Geez. And that was kind of the, some of the, the issue was I went to the ER, my heart rate was at 160 and wouldn't come down. Um, I mean, I thought I was having a heart attack. Jeez. I was like, what is going on? Everything was spinning. I was dizzy. And this is three weeks after I, I did a triathlon. So I'm in, you know, peak shape. Yeah. And, and actually it happened out elk hunting and ended up in the ER and they said, well, we think you're probably dehydrated or maybe you've got a virus or something. And so they gave me some fluids and sent me home. And two days later, I was back in the ER with a bunch of unexplained symptoms. And that started a, just a litany of visits to cardiologists and pulmonologists and functional medicine and internal medicine. And uh, I mean, just anything you can imagine, just trying to find what's the root cause of this. I know something's not, not right. Mm. And every visit, including the very first ER visit, I told the doctor, I got bit by a tick today. Any chance that this is related? And everyone, I'm like, ah, oh, that's only back in New Hampshire. That's the only place that you have to worry about Lyme disease. Yeah, and, east of the Mississippi you know, is what I always heard. Yeah. 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 So four months later, we, uh, and the, the other problem is Lyme disease, you know, the testing for it is very inaccurate. Mm. And so the, the test that we did do came back negative and like, see, it's not Lyme disease, it's something else. And they're looking at all these obscure diseases and, you know, not focusing on, hey, as an engineer myself and a problem solver, this is what changed and this is when it changed. Let's really, you know, investigate this maybe and, and see. And it was about, I think, three months after I got bit before we said, hey, let's send this off to a, a specialty lab and see if maybe there is a little more to it. And it came back that I think six of the eight markers were positive for Lyme disease. Uh, the CDC only needs two of the markers to be positive to recognize it as a positive case. And so kind of confirmed, you know, which is always good to get at least an answer. But at that point, you know, damage had been done and a quick round of antibiotics wasn't going to cut it and, and kill it. So, because oh, there is a way to catch uh, it fast. 
Yeah, if you catch it in the first, you know, and I don't know if it's 28 days or what the, you know, the reproduction cycle of the of the actual spirochete is, but if you catch it in that first bit, uh, 14 or 21 day cycle of uh, doxycycline antibiotics will usually, I don't know what the percentage is, but high percentage of the time it'll knock it out, get rid of it, and won't be any long term effects. Man. That's a, that is wild. Did you have to kind of revamp your nutrition side as well? Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm still, you know, still working on, on that, but where you can't work out and you can't push yourself and you have testosterone levels that are plummeting. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, becomes a continual game of watching your weight mm. and managing weight, not just from a, oh, I'm overweight standpoint, but am I getting the calories that I need? Am I, you know, is the protein and carb ratio good for what I need to be able to, to recognize some gains? And mm-hmm. if I had high levels of testosterone, was able to work out hard, it would probably be considerably different. It's very, it's very fascinating from a high level where you and Randy Newberg both have these huge kind of health battles that you're overcoming as guys that are elk hunting all the time. I know, you know, he has his, his liver issue, which is limiting him to that 40 grams of protein a day. And then he also has a similar issue where because of that, he can't really over exert himself without crashing and burning for too long. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's interesting that both of you kind of have like faced that uh, and worked through it and through consistency found a way to kind of still pursue your dreams, even though you've had those limiting factors. Totally. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I've always been a, a very problem solving oriented person that hey there's a problem here there's got to be a solution let's figure it out and i think that's been uh, one of the most frustrating things to have to learn to deal with is there may not be a solution you know there are a bunch of little solutions that allow you to maintain but there's not a Mm. a cure yeah you know that there's not a thing that's going to get you over this and get you back to normal this this is the new normal and we just have to adapt to that and and do the best we can daily. And like I said, there's, there's still incredibly rough days from a fatigue standpoint. Uh, brain fog is probably one of the worst things that I deal with. Uh, just not being able to, to see clearly, to think clearly, which has always been kind of my, you know, you get in a situation. I've always thought I can tackle any situation, bring it on. I can find a solution. And and now it's like, man, I'm a little bit intimidated by the thought of some of these things happening because I don't think quickly and I don't solve problems clearly like I, like I think I should. Mm -hmm. And so as a business owner, you know, that's, that's frustrating to realize that today is not the day I'm going to be writing this article or no, we aren't filming this today because I can't think clearly enough to be able to, to formulate the thoughts that I want to be able to share. Yeah. I do love Corey though, that, this is one of my favorite theories around mental toughness is a lot of people think about mental toughness and they think about uh, a professional athlete or they think about some amazing event, usually in sports. But one of our great friends told us like, like true mental toughness is really not letting anything in life bring you down. So our, our friend was talking about his father and how his father was a sheep farmer and they'd been through plagues, famines, droughts. And they've, they lost most of their herd. They lost their business a few times, but he always thought about his father that like, regardless of like health or financial circumstances, you just, you just couldn't bring that guy down. And like you're doing a phenomenal job from that standpoint of like Lyme's disease is a, is a big deal, but you're still not letting it bring your morale down. You're still an optimistic, you know, happy man. And that is like a a true kind of testament of your mindset, which is awesome. Well, it, it helps to be able to, you know, in today's world of, of digital media, you know, I can, 
pick the days that are better and, <laughs> and put on a good face for those days. But, you know, it really goes back to, I can't quit, mm-hmm. you know, quitting's not an option. So yep. got to, got to find a way to make today the best it can be and set tomorrow up to, to be as good as it can be. And some days you wake up and things aren't as good as you want, but like I said, that, that promise that tomorrow's a new day and maybe it'll be better. So mm-hmm. let's, uh, let's do what we can today and wake up tomorrow, hoping it's better. I love that. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Corey. I do want to be respectful of your time. I know you got a lot going on, but before we wrap up, I was curious what's going on with Destination Elk this year. Uh, When are those going to come out and what can folks look for this year and where can they find it? Yeah, it's uh, it's almost reaching a fever pitch. A lot of other people are asking the same question, and it's funny. We uh, this is our sixth season of Destination Elk, which is our uh, elk hunting video series that we put out on the Elk One Hundred and One YouTube channel, and we do it later than you know. Most people start their series, their elk hunting series, in November and run them till about now, mm-hmm. and we just found that with the cabin fever and timing and everything we uh mid to late january is kind of when we when we launched that but every year we get comments and messages and emails when's it happening <laughs> did i miss it you know why are you guys so late this year and so uh, we're launching uh, january 23rd is the the launch of episode one and then we'll have a new episode every tuesday and thursday on the elk one on youtube channel through uh, about mid-march and basically it just goes long follows donnie and i on our uh, adventures from our entire elk season uh got some cool stuff i uh, was able to surprise donnie with a tag (laughs) that he's always dreamed of and we had to use randy newberg and kind of fabricating a story (laughs) to get donnie to get to that get the spot where we needed him and bring his bow oh man without uh realizing he was going to be hunting elk so that was a, a fun surprise and then my oldest son drew an incredible archery elk tag in the leftover draw here in idaho so we got to uh, spend a week hunting together and got to to see some incredible elk hunting action and and rut action and then we always do the outfitter for hope hunt where we get to spend a week with a youth with a life-threatening illness Mm. and uh hunt elk with them and that was absolutely incredible again this year so amazing some really cool stuff and then of course donnie and i with our our normal rifle and archery hunts here in idaho uh had a good time so we're excited to launch that and uh we've got you know in addition to people always asking when's it going to launch when's it going to launch every year they're like we can't get enough of this why do we have to wait until next thursday (laughs) so we've teamed up with randy over on his fresh tracks plus platform and we are loading all of the episodes there so they're available to binge watch so people can stream every episode of the season uh from the launch if they want to go over there and and check it out at fresh tracks plus so fresh tracks plus or elk 101 youtube are the two main channels Yep. Those are the two places where people can catch the episodes. That sounds amazing. And I'm I'm assuming you got some big trips planned for this year as well, upcoming. We do. We're, uh, we're doing something that I've never seen done before <laughs> in the hunting industry for Destination Elk V7. Nice. So we've got some really uh, cool stuff, but uh, talk about mental toughness and what it's going <laughs> to show. Uh, we're we're going to be tapping into and testing people's mental toughness this, this season for sure. Oh, I love it. I can't wait to hear more about that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Corey. I appreciate you being here. It's an honor. Um, we'll always love hearing from you and appreciate everything you've done for the the industry. It's, it's amazing. I appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity and excited for what you guys are doing over there as well. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for listening to the Mountain Tough Podcast. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. That was a phenomenal, profound conversation with Corey. I hope you took a ton from that. I know I personally did. I have never heard that story from Corey yet about him overcoming Lyme's disease to do what he does. That is insane. The amount of world-class elk hunting on public land that Corey is doing and he's adapting around that limitation of Lyme's disease 
in his health, in his training, to still do what he does and not let that slow him down is amazing. If you want to learn more about Corey, you can follow him on Instagram at CoreyJacobson.elk101. Thanks for listening to the Mountain Tough Podcast. We are so glad that you are here. Make sure you leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts or check us out on YouTube at Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Stay dangerous and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Mountain Tough Podcast. We'll see you next week.